Hello. So this week we are doing one mythological animal and I am going to first talk to you guys on Aries. Since we literally just went into Aries season, some people thought March 20th, I say March 21st to about April 20th roughly. Now Aries is a cardinal sign, which means it's the leader of the pack. It is um, a fire sign, which includes three signs, or a fire element, I should say, and that includes Aries, which is a cardinal, Leo, which is a fixed, Sagittarius, woo -woo, which is immutable, but Aries is the first sort of zodiac sign of the year. So Aries is Latin for the ram, and it's symbolized by a pair of ram's horns. And like I said, it's the first of the 12 signs to kick off the zodiac. Babylonians named Aries as an agrarian worker. The Greeks called it the golden ram. The ram rescued Phreas, who sacrificed him to the god. The golden fleece was placed in a temple. It is said that Phreas and his sister Hel were despised by their stepmother. The stepmother, I know, made a plan to rid them by having all the wheat crops fail. So the oracle at Delphi was bribed to have the Boeotian king Phreas and Hell's father believe that the only way to keep the land from starvation was to sacrifice his children. The children's birth mother, a cloud nymph, named Nephil, and I know I'm butchering these names, sent the golden ram to rescue them. But sadly, Hell fell off the ram and drowned in what is now known as Hell's Pond. So Phreas brought the fleece to the king Aedes, I can't even say the name, who in return gave him permission to marry his daughter uh, Chalciopia or Calciopia. Since Aries starts off the zodiac lineup and kicks off spring and the equinox, it is a sign of renewal and innocent promise. People who are born in Aries are known for breaking new ground and being a force to be reckoned with. They have a great combination when used intellectually, but detrimental when reckless and emotional. Though they can be hard-headed, Aries people are the ones willing to take charge even in moments of uncertainty. They would do well, actually, to accept advice more and not run full force into things without being focused first. So King Diomedes, again butchering, had these man-eating mares that were destroying the land. Hercules and his friend Abderus caught the mares, but because of Hercules being so driven and stubborn to get the mares back to the castle gates, he didn't take care of Abderus's growing weakness, and the mares got loose, trampling him, sort of showing where impulse and drive can be a bad thing. Ruled by Mars, like the Babylonian god of war and destruction, Nergal, whom ruled the underworld with his life-love goddess Eric Chagall, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to try that one, is the embodiment of raw power when coupled with skill and technique. Now, the two arrows shown most often with Mars depicts the strength which is at its best when it's styled rather than aggressive with passion. Mars is second only to Jupiter for fierceness, and it is deemed by Carl Jung, psychoanalyst, to represent the second half of our lives, maturity, self-realization, and overall health. Shakespeare considered Mars to be during early adulthood. The part of the body that rules Aries would be the head. 
Now, the emperor number four in the tarot's major arcana represents the sign of Aries. And when it's upright, it represents a leader, a planner, someone who steps up to the plate and gets things done. So when it's reversed, the querent could be a little bit dictatorial. Um, they need to establish boundaries or they're falling, they're failing to step up to the plate like they should. Now, also, the tower is number 16 of the Major Arcana card, and it's ruled by Aries planet, Mars, and it warns the Quarant to analyze changes that need to be made before fate steps in. So there's fast and unexpected changes, but when it's reversed, it could mean that the person's avoiding the changes that they need to be, that need to be made, they're not learning life's lessons, or... All of these quick changes has happened, and now it's time that they can slowly start picking up the pieces from all of the changes that occurred. So next, we're going to get into the unicorn. Okay, so now we are getting on to the unicorn. And like a lot of the animals I've talked of, when they get more popularized, um, obviously they come out into play in different generations, different centuries even. And it's almost impossible to give due respect to the history of this sort of creature along with the other ones because there's just so much information. And this is sort of a taste to sort of get you an idea of the origin of the unicorn, okay? So it's a mythological animal and it resembles a horse sometimes a goat actually with a single horn on its forehead which we all know so it appeared in early mesopotamian artworks and it is also referred to in ancient myths of india and china so the earliest greek literature that has it of a single horned um animal and it's called greek mono Curious, Kiros, I don't know, it's Latin for unicorns, <laughs> was by, what is it, Cetesius, it's a historian from 400 BCE, who related that the Indian's wild ass was the size of a horse with a white body, purple head and blue eyes, and on its forehead was a cubit long horn colored red at the pointed tip, black in the middle, and white at the base. So apparently those who drank from this horn were thought to be protected from stomach trouble, epilepsy, and poison. It was um, it was something that was especially fast, not likely to be seen, and obviously even harder to capture. So a lot of people think that the animal behind what he thought he saw or, you know, sort of elaborated on was actually a rhinoceros from India, which is kind of funny, actually. I like when people do stuff like that. <laughs> okay. So let's see here. There's totally different, like there's all different variations that I didn't even know existed of these different sort of versions of the unicorn. But in Chinese mythology, there are many accounts um, that is known in as a creature known as the Quillen, 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 it is often thought to be the Chinese equivalent of a unicorn, but it also looks like a chimera, which we'll get into one of these times. So it is known to have the body of a deer, a lion head, green scales, and one, um, and one major 
defining characteristic. It's uh, they have a similar beast that's called the Kirin, and that's where they think that this is based off of. But they're known for being peaceful. They're magical. Uh, they were told that they're able to walk upon grass without actually even disturbing it. But um, they're often thought to walk on clouds and water instead. Now, that's kind of funny because you think of different stuff that we've had growing up to do with unicorns. You know, it kind of makes you wonder where some of this might have derived from, gotten some of their ideas from without people even knowing it. But these creatures were able to know just by looking at a person if they were evil or not. They were peaceful in nature, but they would punish the wicked. So they're often seen as symbolizing fertility, although they're not known for that, weirdly, but they were shown in artwork as bringing infants to families, kind of like the stork, right? So next we have the African unicorn. And in Congo, there is a creature called the the Abadaba, and it's actually similar. It's known to be about the size of a donkey and have the tail of a boar. Now, this one has two horns instead of one, and it's supposed to serve as a cure for many illnesses, which I thought was kind of interesting. So, in South America, the unicorn is um, usually found in Chile, and it's called the Kamahuto, Huto? I'm, I'm not sure, but it's known to possess many of the same qualities as the unicorn. So, it's around the size of a calf or bull. But it only has the one horn. It's hunted by medicine women, supposedly, because, again, the horn is supposed to be able to cure illnesses. And they were known to be to stalk them and then catch them with a lasso and then tear out its horn, which is terrible. And then after they, the medicine woman would catch it, she would bandage the opening and let the beast go on its way. So they still let them live, weirdly. But it is known that they would shave or scrape off shavings from inside the horn, mix them with seawater and apple cider, and it was supposed to help with vitality and aging as well and impotency for older men. <laughs> Now, some people thought that this animal would um, plant small uh, pieces of the back of the horn onto the ground to let other kamahutos grow. So the medicine woman would actually take pieces of the horn and try to regrow more. In Greek or European unicorns, they apparently possessed the same sort of properties that sort of later came into Christianity. So it was often portrayed as a magical white horse or goat-like creature with a long horn that rose from the center of its forehead, obviously. It was known as a woodland creature that was, again, difficult to capture. Um, It was thought to have cloven hooves and also have powers that were invaluable for the time period. So the unicorn was thought to hold the cure, again, for many illnesses, It was a symbol of purity, and it was said during that time that only virgins could catch a unicorn. A lot of nobility and royalty were going after them, and they would pay crazy amounts of money to try to get people to catch this unicorn's horns. 
Now, the history of the unicorn, the first mention, like I said, was by Cetusius or whatever it is. And, um, and it was in his work called Indica, meaning on India. Keeping an eye on my cat because he's misbehaving as per usual. He described the unicorn as being a breed of wild ass that was incredibly fast. It had, of course, its horn that was about 28 inches in length. Now, he got his information apparently from when he was in Persia. Aristotle also gives a similar look to two such beasts that come from the same region, the oryx and the Indian ass. So a lot of people thought that that's what it was, but there were carvings of unicorns that can be found on a sculpture in ancient capital of Persepolis. So there's also an account of the power of unicorns found by Cosmo Indicopleucidus. <laughs> That's terrible. A merchant from Alexandria. And he shed insights on early India. So while he was visiting the king of Ethiopia, he saw four brass statues that portrayed the unicorn. And he was told that they had the strength of the creature could be found in the horn. And they had the tremendous ability and tendency to throw itself from a high cliff rather than be captured. And it's supposed to absorb all the impact with its horn and escape safely. Not something I'd want to test. So in the Middle Ages, it grew and changed, obviously, over time. And the Christian church, more or less, brought it to how we think of the unicorn today. So... They had a lot of artwork done, sort of um, commissioned, and it allowed for people to still work with this mythological creature without actually being harmed by the church, you know, in that sense. So it sort of gave them a way of sneaking by with this legal, unchurchly behavior. <laughs> okay, so... The unicorn was known to be a mighty creature of the woodlands that was unconquerable by man. Now, like I said, virgins could were supposedly the only ones that could do it, but there were also lots of hunters that always went out for them. Obviously, that's nothing new. And they would use virgins as bait to try to catch them. So there is a link between romance and the unicorn. Many 13th century French authors like to make the analogy that just as a unicorn is attracted to a virgin, so is a lover attracted to his woman, <laughs> and also is a symbol of, the, of a faithful marriage. So Marco Polo actually had a description of the unicorn as well. He said they were close in size to elephants and hair that was similar to that of a buffalo. They had a black horn in the middle of their heads and could only be described as being similar to a boar. He also said that they enjoyed basking in mud and slime and they were nothing like what he had heard they were supposed to be. So the Christian church, they made, they used, um, they used a lot of connections to Christ this way, um, about the incarnation of Christ basically. And the Virgin Mary 
the legend of the unicorn here was to relate Christianity was incarnation of Christ. And it compares the unicorn approaching the virgin as the process that was undergone to allow Virgin Mary to become impregnated with God or Jesus or Yahweh, whatever the hell you want to, however you depict Jesus to be. So the unicorn laying its head down on the virgin lap in close proximity to the womb is like a depiction of her getting pregnant. Sure. So, in another interpretation of Christianity's connection to the unicorn, obviously, like I said, it's passion of the Christ. The hunters represent the sinners who sought to overcome Christ. The unicorn, which is him, was able to outrun the hunters easily because he is embodiment of all that is pure and good. So, the interpretation can possibly be seen that the seven-panel tape... Oh, my God. <laughs> okay, so let me say that again. The interpretation can possibly be seen in the seven-panel tapestry piece entitled The Hunt of the Unicorn. It's a series that depicts a unicorn pursued by many noblemen to be hunted, right? And they're unable to capture the creature until it goes to rest in the lap of a virgin. They went to kill the creature, but the last panel shows a resurrected unicorn that lives happily in a field of flowers. All right, let's see. So we already know that it is something that was known that could have been a rhinoceros. There is also those that believe that the aurochs of Europe could have been what was mistaken for a unicorn. It's an ancestor to, do to domestic cattle. There's also the narwhal, which is one of the biggest perpetrators. Um, Let's see here. Yeah, they used it as a way to like fake trade of the horn. So people went, um, those who looked to Oberon Zell Ravenheart, he was a self-proclaimed wizard that had been pursuing magic in the series of the past four years. And it was his obsession trying to find the unicorn, but... Many who looked at his successes would call it the experiment is phony and obviously a replication. It wasn't actually actually real. I can't understand why. <laughs> okay. So. I just want to find the one next part I had for you guys. You can find... These unicorn tapestries, one of them, there's a series of them, but there's a one, you can see these online too, but they're in New York City in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And a lot of times, if you look them up, you'll see the unicorn rests in a garden and it looks like a unicorn in amongst all these flowers with like a little circular wooden fence around it. But going back to history, even Julius Caesar about 50 BCE, recorded that there was existence of a stag with a single horn. He was taller and straighter than any he had seen before. And let's see, and he was in the Herstinian forest in Germany. And he's not the only one that actually said he saw them there. The Roman historian Elian in 2nd century BCE said that he saw them the same way as... Um, as Cetisius, noting that it can be found in India. So Alien describes their coats as reddish, though, not white, and that their horns were black. And there's a spiral that went up to the very sharp point. Now, he agrees that they are very gentle when they're full grown, and 
that he had heard as well that it could help cure ailments. There are other prominent historical figures that were really well known that people really trusted for their sort of rendition of them saying that they saw or were told of the unicorn. So there was Pliny the Elder, who was a first century CE. Finally, he gave um, a single horned animal the name, which we know today, which is Monoceros or unicorn. And he made it seem like a horse-like animal with a horn and had the feet of an elephant and the tail of a boar. So he said the unicorn was extremely powerful and, of course, couldn't be captured alive in this instance. And that they, of course, had the healing powers and that they were able to hide from people very easily, blah, blah, blah. We already went through that. So then we're getting into the different times where you could go and see them in different art through the Renaissance, which was influenced, <clears throat> excuse me, through um, through the Christian church. So you can go see the Unicorn Tapestries, which is a series of seven tapestries housed in the Met cloisters, and they depict the hunt for a unicorn. So they had been woven over a 10-year period in 1495 to 1505 CE. And they were, dis- they were discovered by Francois V, or sorry, Francois VI de la Roquefoutauld in 1680 CE. Though each tapestry is sometimes called by different names, the Met currently refers to them as the hunters enter the woods, the unicorn purifies water, the unicorn crosses a stream, the unicorn defends himself, the unicorn surrenders to a maiden, the hunters return to the castle, the unicorn rests in a garden. And that would be where he sort of resurrected, right, in a sense, in the Christian depiction. So we do get to see in these tapestries the healing powers of the unicorn and how he defends himself from the hunters but how he is susceptible, the unicorn, to a young maiden, in this case, or virgin. And that is one way that they are able to go and get him. And then we do see him killed, but later alive and well with his resurrection, which is really kind of sad. I don't like stuff like that. I'm an animal person. So the second set of tapestries were woven around 1500 CE for the La Vista family, and they're held at the... Musée de Clury in Paris, known collectively as the Lady and the Unicorn. They have five tapestries, each depicting the five senses, touch, hearing, smell, sight, and taste. And a sixth tapestry called Mon Seul Désir, My Only Desire. And it's one that people think depict love or free will, which I think is pretty cool. So it became a choice for family crusts in Europe especially um, because of poison being a big thing in the Middle Ages. It was something that people would have, say, the unicorn depicting taste to sort of help them in keeping them safe on their coat of arms. So we have Paleolithic Lascaux Caves that date back to 17,000 BCE. And it is, and you can Google these. They're really amazing, actually. They're on soapstone seals from the Indus Valley Civilization, 7,000 C to 600 C BCE, um, from South Asia that archaeologists found. And they're amazing. 
And they believe that this might have been where it might have started, but they don't know for sure. So the Chinese quillin that I had mentioned before have been compared to the unicorn of Europe and medieval folklore. But usually, like I said, it had two horns. So they do believe that people were probably hoaxing or they were doing sort of the big fish, like fishtails theory, where they take a creature that did exist over time and they just made it grandiose right and making it more magical or they had been told the tale from someone else telephone theory changes over time nevertheless people adore the unicorn i definitely say look up those soapstone archaeological findings but check out the met online to see the the unicorn tapestries because anyone who loves unicorns knows them and they're they are it is a white unicorn but it's not the traditional look it's kind of um i don't know it just has more of a mystery and darker sort of sense to the unicorn that we think of as all prissy and pretty and whatever so yeah it makes it pretty cool so i will be back next time and until then, have fun. Bye.